Well, whether you realize it or not, this Friday, the Winter Olympics begin. Any big Winter Olympic fans out there, it starts this, this Friday, and, and I, I love the Olympics. I, I, my, my joke is that the Olympics have a way of making us fanatic about sporting events we literally haven't thought about in four years, right? In the next two to three weeks, some of you are going to become huge bobsled fans, and you haven't thought about bobsled in a long, long time. And, uh, you know, um, when I think of the Winter Olympics versus the Summer Olympics, how many of you you prefer the Summer Olympics. The Summer Olympics is your, you prefer to the Winter Olympics. How many of you, by, so that's a lot of you, the rest of you prefer the Winter Olympics? So when I think about the difference between the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics, some of you, I think, by your faces just hate the Olympics, I think. Um, but when I think about the difference between the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics is that if I were to try to do the things that they do in the Summer Olympics, I would terribly embarrass myself, no doubt about it. It would be embarrassing. I would not be able to show my face in public again. But if I try to do some of the events in the Winter Olympics, I might kill myself. Like, some of the things they do in the Winter Olympics is crazy. Uh, you don't want to see me going down a hill on skis. It, it, it won't be pretty. You don't, I don't want to go on the bobsled. I don't want to do the luge. Um, actually, Ed Gustafson's nephew, Johnny, who's from Messina, he's in China right now. He's representing our country in luge. So you got to keep your eye open for Johnny Gustafson, uh, Olympian uh, in the luge. I've been trying to tell people that I know someone, or I know someone who knows someone who's a luger, but it sounds like the word loser. So he's not a, he's a loser. You got to pronounce that carefully. Um, so, you know, but when I think of the Olympics, I think of these athletes and what we get to see is just a moment on stage a moment in the spotlight, but what we don't see is the hours, the weeks, the months, the years that they've put in to that moment. And the best athletes in the world would all say the same thing. They would say, what you put into something is what you get out of it. What you put in is what you get out. And as we move in our fifth week of the Beatitudes, and we're looking here at the sixth Beatitude, this is the only Beatitude where what you put into it is exactly what you get out of it. And Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what Jesus does here is we get to the sixth beatitude. We're a little bit out of order right now, but that's okay. But we're on the sixth beatitude. What Jesus is doing is he has been building this series of thoughts of what it looks like to be a person of the kingdom of God. And with the sixth beatitude, he makes a very important shift. He shifts from things that focus on our relationship with God and who we are, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is the first time where really the heart of this value is not your relationship with God, although everything starts there, of course, but it's your relationship with others. This is where Jesus begins to shift from focusing on you and how you see God and how you see yourself to how you see other people. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, this is really important because this is where the rubber meets the road. We can say all sorts of things about ourselves and our relationship with God, but how do we treat other people? How do we look and view, look at and view other people? It's one thing to, to, to be poor in spirit, but it's another thing if you make me feel poor in spirit. It's one thing to mourn, but it's another thing if you do something that causes me to mourn. It's one thing to be meek, but it's another thing if you expect me to be meek, Right? We're okay with these things until it starts to involve each other. <laughs> then it gets very complicated. And so this morning, we're going to learn about what it means to be merciful and how the merciful receive mercy. And if we're honest, every single one of us needs mercy, God's mercy. In fact, the Scriptures promises that his mercies are new every morning. 
And as wonderful as a promise as that is, it also means that you and I are so messed up, we need mercies every morning. And yesterday's mercies aren't good enough. We need new mercies this morning. That's the kind of mess you and I are. And so here, Jesus teaches us three things about the merciful. And the first thing is this, that the merciful, oh, that's the wrong direction. That the merciful see needs and meet needs. The merciful see needs and meet. The, the, the English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said that grace Sometimes we wonder, what's the difference between grace and mercy, right? We're going to talk a little bit about that a couple times this morning. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says that grace finds us in our sin, but mercy finds us in our misery. Two different things. Grace finds us in our sins, but mercy finds us in our misery. And often our misery is related to our sins. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for merciful is translated to give help to the wretched and to relieve the miserable. Here, the essential thought of being merciful is that you give attention to those in misery. However, merciful or being merciful is not simply feeling compassion. One of the commentaries said, we must never imagine, listen to this, we must never imagine that we are merciful simply because we feel compassionate towards someone in distress. Mercy means active goodwill. What he's saying there is that mercy doesn't just feel something, mercy does something. Mercy doesn't just see needs, mercy meet needs. I remember years ago meeting this chef, um, his name was Lance, and he, he had been on the uh, Food Network show called Chopped. Anybody seen Chopped? In this show Chopped, there's four chefs, and they're making an appetizer, entree, and dessert. And every step of the way, they get this basket with mystery ingredients, and they have to use the ingredients, and they chop one person all the way through until there's one winner left. It's a great show. We enjoy watching it as a family. And this, this guy named Lance, he, he was on Chopped, and he stuck out to me because he was a great chef, but also it became evident he was a believer in Jesus. He talked so much about his faith. And then I learned that he was a chef at a camp up in Speculator, New York, called Camp of the Woods, where our teenagers and leaders are this morning. It's a, there's a winter retreat that happens every January, and he was the head chef at Camp of the Woods, and I was going there for a winter retreat. So I had to meet this guy, right, Food Network star. And he didn't win his first episode. He lost a very close battle to another great chef. But even the judges were like, you two are two of the best chefs we've ever had. If Lance, if you were here on another show, you would have won. And so I meet Lance, and he tells me they invited me back. And I got to do it again. He's like, I can't tell you what happened, but it's going to be coming out soon. And so, you know, we're watching for Lance to come back. And sure enough, Lance gets back on Chopped. And again, the whole show, whenever they interview him, every chance he gets, he talks about his faith, his love for Jesus. And, and I just thought, this is so cool. He's talking about his faith. It's a good witness. And he wins the episode. And the winner gets $10,000. And throughout the episode, they interview the different chefs. And they say, if you win, what will you do with the money? And the woman that he was up against in the finals was somewhere from Eastern Europe. And she said, my mom lives back in Eastern Europe, and I haven't seen her in years. And she's, I think she might even have been sick. And she said, if I win the money, I'm going to buy an airplane ticket so I can go see my mom. And so you're kind of like rooting for this girl. Like, oh, man, what an amazing thing. But then she loses in the finals to Lance. And before she can walk off the, sh the set, Lance says, wait, 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 wait. And he says, I want to I buy her a ticket with my winnings. And, and the whole, like, the, the judges are crying, and the host is crying, and he's like, he's like you, you, you cooked so well today. I want you to see your mom. I'm going to pay for your ticket to go. And in that moment, I thought, this is so much better than him just talking about his faith. I mean, it's wonderful that he talked about his faith, but everybody would just dismiss him because he's just talking about his faith. 
But anybody who watched that show, when he did that, when he had mercy on her, everybody would have thought he's the real deal. Because he didn't just see a need, he met a need. And mercy is not just, I feel bad, I feel terrible, oh man, I'm with you. Mercy moves and does something. And I know we can be overwhelmed, because how many of you at times feel overwhelmed by the amount of need? There's so much need. But Mother Teresa said, do for one what you wish you could do for all. You can't do everything for everyone, but you can do something for someone. And that's where it starts. Mercy sees needs. Mercy meets needs. True mercy results in action and movement. So what do we tend to do instead of this? Instead of seeing needs and meeting needs, what do we tend to do? I wrote down a few things. Uh, We tend just to not see needs. and, And we distract ourselves with life and entertainment, and we numb ourselves with Netflix, and we bury ourselves in activity and busyness, and we just say, oh, if I just had more time on my calendar, then I could really help people. Well, who's in control of your calendar? Do you control your calendar, or does your calendar control you? And some of us fill our lives with so much stuff that we can't even see the needs around us. Other people, we see needs and meet needs, but they're my needs. (laughs) I see my needs, and I meet my needs because I'm obsessed about my own needs. And as long as you're thinking about everything that you need, you're never going to see all the needs around you. Other people, they see the need, but then what they do is they diagnose the need, and they explain it away. They build a narrative around it. They say, I see that person has a need, but I bet if they had just done X, Y, and Z, they wouldn't have that need. And what we begin to do is we let ourselves off the hook of helping people because we think they probably kind of deserve what they got. But remember, mercy doesn't have that conversation. Mercy doesn't, I'm not talking about having wisdom and not not enabling people, right? There is some wisdom in not enabling people who, who are not taking responsibility for their lives. I understand that. But I'm talking about just jumping to conclusions about why people are in the situations and circumstances that they're in, creating a story around it, and then not meeting their needs. And then some of us, we see needs and we meet needs, but only of a select group of people, people who look like us, people who think like us, people who live like us. Just yesterday morning, we had about 30 men at this Chick-fil-A over here having breakfast together, and the manager, we do that the last Saturday of every month, and the manager came out. I happen to know this, this young guy. Uh, he's a Christian, and he said, is this your, he, he said, is this a group of men from your church? And I said, yeah, it is. And he goes, man, it's like, he's like, it's such a diverse group. That was his comment. Like, he just looked around. He said, it's a very different group of guys. They all kind of different ages, different, you know, I don't know what else he was referencing exactly, but he's just saying, you look like a very diverse group of guys. And I thought, that's, that's such a compliment to our, our church family, that when we gather, people would walk in from the outside and go, why are these people hanging out with each other? They don't look like each other, different ethnicities, different, different beliefs on different things, different, uh, even different politics, different socioeconomic standings, all sorts of different things. But, but we are committed to meeting the needs of people that God brings into our lives. See, when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he did something radical. He redefined the word neighbor. He said, neighbor is no longer defined by proximity or commonality. Your neighbor is not just someone that you're near or someone that you have things in common with. Neighbor is now defined by opportunity. And anyone you have the opportunity to serve, that person now becomes, in the kingdom of God, your neighbor. And so we see needs and we meet the needs of all. I remember my dad years ago saying that the true test of spirituality is what you do for someone who can do nothing for you in return. The true test of spirituality is what you do for someone who can do nothing for you in return. As Christians, we should be not just open to, but we should be looking for people who could do nothing for us in return and blessing them because that's what it looks like to be the merciful. 
And look what happens when we do this. There's this kind of interesting passage before we get to our second point in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Avenging ourselves is the opposite of mercy, by the way. Taking justice into your own hands to get your revenge, that's the opposite of mercy. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So Paul's not saying that it won't be taken care of. It will eventually. And this is the only true motivation for being merciful and not taking things in our own hands is trusting that there is a God who is just, who sees all, who knows all, and who will make all things right someday so we can trust him with it. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord has promised, I'm gonna take care of those who have sinned against you. 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Now, not your friend, not your neighbor, not someone you feel ambivalent towards, but if your enemy, who would your enemy be today? What category of people would you consider as possibly your enemies because of what they think or how they live? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, this is a weird phrase here. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what does that phrase mean? Because at first it's like, hold on, by doing good to my, na- to, to my enemy, am I actually hurting them? Because now I'm interested. I want, to, I, want, I want to know more. How can I do good and heap burning coals onto his head? That sounds like a good deal. But what Paul is actually doing here is he's referencing what would have been a well-known process used to refine metal, a metallurgical process used in biblical times where they would take the metal or the ore and they would put it in an oven over a layer of hot coals. Then they would take another scoop or layer of burning coals and they would heap it on top of the metal. So the metal now has hot coals underneath it and then they heap the coals on top of the metal so that there's hot coals on top of it in order to melt the metal and purify it. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that when you have mercy, even on your enemy, your good works and your good actions, when they're accomplished in the fire of the Holy Spirit, what they will do is they have, the, they have the goal of actually melting the heart of your enemy. Melting their heart, refining their heart, so that all that stands between not just them and you, but between them and God can be dealt with. So what Paul is saying here is even your mercy towards your enemies has the potential to melt their hearts in such a way that they will love and serve God. Isn't that amazing? The merciful see needs and the merciful meet needs. Second point, the merciful forgive in full. You know, I've, I've heard it said this way, and this is a, a little bit of a simplification, but I, it's memorable. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve, but mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve, but mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. And here, in this, in this text, when, when, Paul, when, when Jesus says merciful, the New Testament scholar Gulick says that this describes someone who forgives and pardons another one who is in the wrong. There is the heart of forgiveness in those who are merciful. I know like there are things that we like the idea of more than we like the reality of, right? Like I like the idea of going to live sporting events. I love the idea of the crowd and the energy. But then often when I get to these events and I'm listening to the people around me screaming the things that they're screaming and I've just par- I just paid 20 bucks to park and I just walked halfway up a hill and all this sort of stuff and I'm sitting in an uncomfortable seat and the team is losing on the field, all I'm missing is my couch, <laughs> my remote control, and my refrigerator, right, and my own bathroom. And so, you know, I've realized I like the idea of live events more than I like the reality of them. And I think most people like the idea of forgiveness more than they like the reality of it. Everybody likes the idea of forgiveness. Sounds good. Until you have to forgive someone. Then, not as interested. 
not so great. And here, Jesus is teaching us that the merciful are those who forgive. And he tells us this story in Matthew chapter 18. If you've heard it before, you'll never forget it. It's the story of the unmerciful servant. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? He's thinking that he's going above and beyond because I believe the standard back then might have been like three times. So Peter's trying to show off. Seven times? And Jesus says, no, forgive him 70 times seven, or some translations say 77 times. Jesus wasn't giving him another number to aim for. He was speaking of, the, of just sort of this unlimited, the extreme by which we must extend forgiveness. And he tells this story. He tells a story about a king who's settling debts with his servants, and he calls in this man to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, what is that? 10,000 talents is the modern-day equivalent of $6 billion, he, with a B. He owed him $6 billion, and Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. He owed him a debt that he could not pay. And he begged of him, he said, please forgive me and, and, and I will work and work and for the rest of my life I will work to pay off this debt. And the master says, uh, don't worry about it, you're forgiven, go. He forgave him the debt. And then look what happens in this story. But then that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, what is 100 denarii today? $12,000. So still is a, it is a decent amount of money. But he just was forgiven Six billion dollars. And he finds this guy who owns him 12 grand and he shakes him down and he begins to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. And then this servant begs to him the exact same thing that he had just begged to his master. Please forgive me and I'll work hard and I'll pay you back. And he has no mercy on him and he throws him into jail. And then the master hears about this and the master calls this guy back to him and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a tough story, right? This is a tough one. There's a cost to forgiving people, right? Um, one of the costs of forgiving people is that you have to give up your feeling of superiority to them. When you forgive someone, you lay down your right to feel better than them. And we don't always want to lay that down. That's a cost. We give up the right or the position of superiority. We also lose, there's another thing it costs us when we forgive people, we lose or we give up or we, we set aside our identity as the wronged. Some people build their identity around being a wronged person, that they've been wronged, and that's who they are, and that's, that's what they talk about all the time. But to forgive someone, you have to move past that identity. But also another cost of forgiveness is that it costs you the power or control that you hold over that person who still owes you something. As long as you don't forgive them, they still are sort of in debt to you. And so there is a cost. I understand there is a costliness to forgiving people. You give up your sense of superiority. You give up your identity as the one who's been sinned against. You give up the power and control you have over those who owe you. But the point of this story is that there's a greater cost to not forgiving, a greater cost. When you will not forgive someone, you continue to give that person power over you. You continue to let them live in your mind and in your heart. And when you forgive someone, what you'll find is that you aren't setting that person free. You're setting yourself free from the bondage of bitterness and hate and unforgiveness. And I'm, no, I'm sure some of you have been sinned against in ways that make this very hard to hear this morning. But the question that the father would ask us is the same question that the master asked the servant. 
Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? This isn't about being easygoing. Being merciful is not like, ah, eh, whatever happened, who cares? It's not, about let it, it's not about not holding people accountable. In fact, the beatitude right before this, which again, we're out of order, we're gonna talk about it next week. The beatitude right before this is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And righteousness is that things would be made right and that justice would happen. So Jesus is not saying the merciful are sort of whatever, whatever. The merciful are fully aware of the brokenness and justice that's been done towards them, but they choose mercy because they have received mercy. And we're going to talk about in just a moment that you don't choose mercy to receive mercy, you choose mercy because you've received mercy. This isn't about just not holding people accountable. This is about trusting in a just God and refusing to let your heart be corrupted and controlled by what someone else has done to you. And the ultimate cost of unforgiveness is that we ourselves live unforgiven. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if I am, this, was, this, was a, this is kind of hard, but I think he might be right. He said, if I am not merciful, there is only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and the mercy of God. I am outside Christ. I am still in my sins, and I am unforgiven. If I am not merciful, there's one explanation. I do not understand the mercy of God. The last thing we learn here, and I'm going to have the band join me, the merciful have received mercy. Now, I know this seems like, why is this past tense? Shouldn't it be the merciful receive mercy, present tense, or they will receive mercy? But remember, the Beatitudes, as we've been studying them these five weeks, the Beatitudes are not conditional statements. They're not if-then statements. It's not if you are merciful, then you will receive mercy. Jesus is not giving us a way to be saved. He's not saying, here's how to be saved. Listen to this. This is an important distinction with the Beatitudes. He's not saying, here's how to be saved. He's saying, here's who are the saved. Do you understand? It's not a list of things to do so that you can be saved. It's identifying characteristics of those who have received the grace of God. The Beatitudes are the signs and evidences, not that you want to be saved or that you're going to be saved, but that you have been saved. And that's why I put this in past tense, because there is no hope for us to truly be merciful, the radical way in which Jesus calls us to be merciful, unless you and I have this overwhelming sense upon our hearts that we have received mercy. We owed God in this parable. We were the servant who owed God six billion dollars with not a, in a hundred lifetimes we could not pay him back and he didn't just say all right well yeah just work towards it just work towards it and eventually you'll pay it off he just that's what the servant asked for let me work towards it but the mercy that he received was even more than he hoped for the master didn't say oh, okay sounds good keep working he said forget it it's forgiven and this is the sort of mercy you and i have received from god one of the commentaries said, some people completely miss the point here, supposing that this beatitude teaches that you can earn God's mercy by performing acts of mercy. This would be a complete opposite with the rest of Scripture, which teaches that salvation is by grace alone. And if we're being merciful to earn mercy, then that poisons our motivations. Now it's not about self-denial and self-forgetfulness. It's about self-preservation and improving ourselves. He goes on to say in the commentary, moreover, if receiving God's forgiveness could only be merited by becoming as forgiving as God is, then none of us would ever truly be forgiven, for none of us can ever absolutely meet that standard. And by the time we get to this beatitude, look at the mercy that the people of God have received. The poor in spirit have received the kingdom. Those who mourn have received the comfort of God. 
The meek have inherited the earth, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness have been satisfied. And what this beatitude this morning means is that those who are truly God's children and know that instead of being objects of his wrath, they are objects of his mercy, they themselves will not be able to help themselves in being merciful. It'll be an overflow of a changed life. Showing mercy is evidence that we've received mercy. And so if you and I are here this morning and we struggle to be merciful to others, the answer is not to just try harder. The answer is to go back to the cross and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And look what you did for me. You took the sins of the world upon you on the cross. I deserve judgment and wrath. I was an enemy of God, hostile towards him in my heart, hostile towards him in my thoughts, against him, raising my fist to him in every single way. And yet you looked at me and you loved me and you poured your mercy and your forgiveness out on me. And as we begin to live in the overflow of that mercy, you know what? You're gonna become such a merciful person. You won't be judging people. You won't be jumping to conclusions. You won't be angry at people. You will, you, you, you will be, uh, forgiveness will always be hard for us. I understand that. But you will be able to forgive by his grace because of the mercy. Who has given us more than God has given us? Who have we sinned against more than we've sinned against God? And yet for him, we have received such mercy. And so those who have received mercy should be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together.